Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and thanks for checking in with The Daily Evolver while we're having our summer hiatus from the live podcast. This week, we're going to bring you an episode from the archives, one of my favorites, a conversation with Charles Eisenstein, who is quite a visionary and author of really the classic book, I think, Sacred Economics, uh, and also his latest book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. I love that title. Uh, Charles and I agree on a lot, including that a sacred world is on its way and that humanity is on an ascending path and we're not falling from paradise. But we disagree on how we got here. And I think our disagreement captures a difference between even leading edge progressive thinking and what I consider to be a more integral evolutionary perspective. Uh, The question is, did humanity go wrong and do we have to fix it? Is that the situation we're in? Or are we just growing up? Have a listen and see what you think. Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here this morning with Charles Eisenstein uh, coming to us from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I'm here in Boulder, Colorado. And we're just going to meet each other a bit here. We've never really met. We haven't talked. Charles has been through Boulder with his message of sacred economics, which is, I mean, just that title alone just gives me pause and gives me hope and, you know, makes me curious. And I've looked through it and looked through your stuff, Charles, and it's, um, you know, very stimulating, very moving. And so I just wanted to have a conversation with you. I just want to mention before I do that a couple of uh, things about Charles. I mentioned his book, Sacred Economics, which has gotten a lot of attention and about to release a book called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible, which is just another beautiful title and is transmissive in its own way. Charles, we talked a little bit before we started recording, and I mentioned that, of course, I'm coming from the evolutionary integral uh, worldview. And so, you know, when I think about how things are happening and, and unfolding, you know, we see the stages of development from hunter-gatherer to horticulture, agrarian, industrial information, and so forth. And then, you know, it's like, what's next? We do know that the world is being lit up and, and there is a updraft of, of evolution that we're riding. At least that's our view, and maybe you, you differ there. But either way, we're looking at, so what's next? If we are indeed evolving into something new, And so that's always just an interesting point of discussion for me because I don't know and I have some ideas and I know you do too and I just like to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, I don't think uh, we really know what's next. I I agree that, you know, looking back over history uh, through all these stages, it seems to me that this has all got to be for some purpose, you know. It's not just (laughs) this, like this haphazard, meaningless series of random events, you know, as Shakespeare would put it, you know, a sound and a fury signifying nothing like there's got, it seems to be leading towards something, especially because each of these stages of evolution is about a 10th as long as the previous one. Yeah. I just saw this cool little riddle online and the riddle is this, how does one achieve the complete works of Shakespeare? 
And the answer is, get a whole big mess of hydrogen and leave it alone for 13.7 billion years. Right. You know, there's yes. something going on here. <laughs> right. And, and, and that thing going on either is that there's something else beside, besides hydrogen, you know, something else besides, you know, the building blocks. Yeah. Uh, or the other possibility is that hydrogen isn't what we thought it was. And <laughs> I tend to lean toward the latter mm -hmm. uh, because I think that this divide between spirit and matter, which mirrors the divide between commerce and the sacred, the soul and the flesh and all that, I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, what we're moving toward too. is, yeah, you know, a healing of this rift. That's why the book title maybe gave you pause uh, and you were psyched about just even the title because, you know, th this is the healing we need right now. But yeah, I appreciate the riddle. <laughs> yeah. 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 So sacred economics, we move out of a monetary system. You, you, you do talk a bit about, you know, what you see as next in terms of the real structures. Yeah. It's not, it's not moving out of a monetary system. Well, in part it is. It's certainly about reclaiming some dimensions of life from money. Right. Uh, there, you know, there's a lot that's been given over to money, like, you know, elder care, you know, child care, cooking, that could be done in community and locally. So there is that. Uh, singing, yeah. you know, like, why, why do we pay for our songs? Well, actually, that's changing, but, but we should sing for each other, too. But, but then there's the other part of it, which is saying, you know, it's not, we're not going back to a hunter-gatherer world. Uh, we're going to stay global and continue to do things that require the coordinated creativity and labor of billions of people. So I think we still also need something very much like money. So the book is also about uh, how money could change and needs to change and wants to change in order to embody the new paradigm. Yeah. One of the gifts of Integral is this idea that consciousness, it's like you were talking about hydrogen, that hydrogen atoms actually have a consciousness. They have an interiority. Right. And then that interiority goes all the way down, the subatomic, and it comes all the way up and, and evolves simultaneously with the exteriors. And so we see these systems of, of economics that have evolved already in human history, the latest of which has been you know, money, which has, I mean, the upside is it's actually an amazingly complex way of distributing energy in a way that builds, it creates wealth mm -hmm. for ever more people with right. downsides that, you know, we can't ignore, but there's a tremendous upside to it. Do you see it that way or do you have a... Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, like, certainly, I mean, money does work in certain obvious ways. Uh, it's how we coordinate human labor over yeah. vast social distances, you know. Um, there might be other ways to, to enact such a coordination, but even, you know, the communist countries still used money. They couldn't come up with a better way. Yeah. And, like, I know there are some people, like, you know, in um, the Zeitgeist movement and stuff, we're talking about, you know, having kind of computers calculate the optimal distribution of resources. Uh -huh. uh, and that's an idea I don't really buy into just because the means of data collection that those computers would have to use 
which would have to reflect the preferences of billions of people would themselves end up constituting something very like money. Yeah. It's interesting to think how we move forward because what we have with the money system, and of course the money system is going to be transcended by something new and actually probably something radically new if we look at history and look at evolution. You know, evolution means pretty radical new structure. You know, and what we can see happening, I just saw in the New York Times Magazine, I think it was two or three Sundays ago, an article about the end of poverty. Uh, And it's basically talking about we can see the end of poverty in the world in terms of, you know, the the movement of people into out of the bottom two billion. uh, Yeah, boy, am I suspicious. Boy, am I suspicious of that end of poverty. Really? Yeah, I mean, a lot of, you know... (laughs) You hear all this, you know, about whatever, half the world living on less than $2 a day and like these kind of statistics. And, mm-hmm. and you know, we think that if they make $5 a day or $10 a day or $50 a day, that they're better off. But, you know, historically, a lot of what that's been has been taking people who lived either as hunter-gatherers or as subsistence farmers and who hardly used money at all, but had very, very rich lives and essentially forcing them into the money economy. So you, you, you take them out of their, their self-sufficient context uh, and throw them into the industrial economy, put them to work on a plantation or something like that, and all of a sudden, according to an economist, they're richer, they're out of poverty. I think there's some distinctions we can make. Certainly, there are no, no doubt cases of exactly what you said, slavery being one of them. Uh, but there's also the case of... I look at China, and, and, and we'll set aside the downsides of the environmental issue because that needs to be dealt with too. But in terms of just the actual, as they say, lifting people out of poverty, you can argue that the labor conditions weren't great, but people flocked to these. They want to get out of the hamlets. They want to get out of the uncouth, unclean, traditional structures and move into something clean and, you know, where they're not batting flies out of their eyes. And uh-huh. that's, that's an interior motivation on human beings' part. I mean, we did move out of agrarian cultures, human beings. That wasn't a mistake, was it? Well, that's an interesting question to ask. Why exactly do they want to move out of the hills? <clears throat> and why do many young people today uh, that I meet want to move back into the hamlets? Uh, well, they want to the move back, and back into the land. Well, absolutely. And I think that's the move forward, Charles. Uh, is that we do actually move back to the hamlets, but this time with the achievements of modernity, so that things are clean and... Yeah, clean, clean is an interesting concept, concept to deconstruct as well. I mean, I'm not saying that people should be stuck in their hamlets. Boy, there's a lot to say about this. <laughs> cool. One of the things I, I, I'm thinking about, and I, may write a, I might write a book about this, uh, is to offer a new model of development. You know, we call a country like China or India, a developing country, and we call ourselves developed, which essentially yeah. says destination us. Uh, but if everybody becomes like us, then we don't have a planet to live on. And so what could development mean? What's another way to think of development? Like, obviously, we're not going to say stay where you are, you know, stagnate where you are, but is there right. another model of development? Well, so one idea is that they could perhaps skip the stage of centralization, 
and you know like big centralized infrastructure and top-down hierarchical control of society and all that kind of stuff and yeah. leapfrog directly to where we want to go which is toward you know permaculture distributed energy yes. structures distributed uh, open source industry even and because they have a lot less infrastructural baggage and are in some ways closer already to to permaculture and things like that right. they could actually move ahead and and so in that context i think we have to we we need to rethink what the consequences are of everybody leaving the hamlet and going to delhi or or shanghai right uh, and Absolutely. why do people want to leave the hamlet like what if you know there's universal internet access what if it's considered normal for somebody you know in their late adolescence to go on a journey and and discover the world and then to come back home which is just how the the fairy tales prescribed uh, the journey yeah. from youth to adulthood. You know, you, you, well, you come God, back. Yeah. Yeah. God bless you, Charles. That's a, a beautiful vision, and I actually think we're heading there. I you know, so. I really do. I mean, I don't see, especially if we, we, you look at places like in Africa, they're going to skip a lot of this. They're, they don't, they're, you know, they're not going to have to. I think and the potential I see is there. great hope yeah. for that. Yeah, totally. Me too. Yeah. And I think we'll work our way into that at any rate because. This informational, industrialized thing, it's going to, at some point, we get enough wealth, actually. I mean, we're actually getting really, really good at creating wealth. We want to get good at creating wealth sustainably. It's been on a growth model so far. We need to move to a sustainability model. We are doing that. You know, you can argue faster, slower, effective, ineffective, whatever, but that is the sort of seems to be the spirit of history here in real time. And then once we create enough material wealth, which we realize, especially as our consciousness development continues to develop, we don't actually need that much wealth to be happy. In fact, right. extra wealth actually makes us unhappy. Or, or we could say that our understanding of what wealth is is changing. Thank you. And, and we're understanding you. that, that, you know, the, that the 3,000-square-foot house doesn't make you twice as happy as the 1,500-square-foot house. No. And that, you know, the additional self-storage unit, you know, and, and the, the really, I mean, what, what we've had is a growth in pretty much everything that you can measure. That's yeah. what economic That's growth right. is fundamentally yeah. because it's defined yeah. as something denominated in money, you know, and, yeah. and it's come at the cost of the things that we can't measure. And those are the things that we're starving for yes. today. No, that's true. That's true. And, you know, I would see that as, you know, I, I blame God in a way, but it's sort of a necessary stage of development that we lose these, you know, our sort of traditional mythic religions, and we sort of have to go into a certain alienated, secular, we're meaningless, hurtling through space, random chance, Ayn Rand, you know, all of that stuff. And then we can sort of bring some of this. This is the, the great thing about Integral again is that, you know, we see that at some point we just want to bring back the best of all of it, the mythic, the magic, even the traditional, you know, sitting up straight and being good. <laughs> and we can see it happening. I think, you know, it's like I was last night with my godson who's showing me his video games. He's 22. Mm-hmm. And he's playing this game called Persona, that I guess is very popular, and I had no idea it existed. Uh-huh. And it's about him working with these shadow elements of his psyche 
uh, including like you know the gay one, and you know, and it's and there's it's scored and there's points and there's strategy, and it's very engaging as entertainment. And I'm thinking, my God, this is worth a year of therapy for this kid. Interesting. You know, I mean, these kinds of things. I think we underestimate because we look at various markers and economic markers and even you know legislation, and but we miss what's happening on the ground in a way where we see that there, there, the new economy and the new ways of thinking, and this is what I want to ask you, um, Charles, is I still have a hard time sort of wrapping my head around an economy based on creativity and self-expression and exchange and the, you know, these wonderful higher levels of exchange that we presumably will be able to have once we sort of snap out of the dream of, of materialism. What's the medium of exchange? I mean, can we build an economy based on creativity and self-expression? Well, you know, a, a lot of those things are, they don't lend themselves necessarily to the kinds of goods and services that are suitable for monetary exchange in the sense that, I mean, I, I think we're mostly talking about digital goods here. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, okay. Well, let's, let's no, say not that necessarily. Thing, I'm thinking even like, you know, people having groups going out into the woods or, you know, that kind of stuff where it's uh, just a, you know, we're helping each other be been, better people. The, the economy has always been based on self-expression I mean, and creativity yeah, in, good in point. one sense, right? I mean, good you know, point. blacksmith, right? I love but, your article to, about the boat, the Swedish boat builder, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was sweet. Yeah. Yes, beautiful. But for something to, to, be, to work in the money economy, it has to produce something that you can measure. When you're producing qualitative things, then there's no natural price point. It's kind of arbitrary what the price is. Uh, but I've got to put that into context. Let's just say that, that the amount of human labor that's necessary to meet our quantifiable needs uh, will be less and less and less. It already has been less and less and less, in fact, yes. just because yes. it increases in productivity. But rather yes. than uh, work less and less to meet our quantifiable needs, we've uh, consumed more and more and more and right. worked just as hard. But that process is reaching its, its end for a number of reasons, one of which is that, is that we're running out of uh, nature to convert into product. And, <laughs> yes, yes. and we're also like replete, um, some of us at least, the elites, uh, the, the richest, the you know, richest 20% of the world, we don't really need to consume more of what's quantifiable. Um, yes. So many, many people on this planet experience severe scarcity, but it's not because there's not enough stuff. And it's not because there's not enough productive capacity. So that problem has essentially been solved. And in a way, you could say that it's, it's always been solved, that scarcity has always been a matter of distribution and that our artificial needs have grown and grown and grown. For example, the need to have a you know, huge closet full of clothes. Um, whereas right. you know, 200 years ago, most people owned two sets of clothes your everyday right. clothes and your Sunday clothes. Now, when your, Sunday yes. clo when your everyday clothes wore out, finally, you'd, the Sunday clothes would become the everyday clothes and you'd get a new pair of Sunday clothes. Anyway, so, so the, for a variety of reasons, the endless increase in the consumption of the quantifiable is 
nearing an end, uh, which means that we're going to have to start working less hard, producing those quantifiable things and spend more and more time producing the things that you were talking about. Um, spending more and more time, you know, taking each other out into the woods, spending more and more time on, you know, whatever, psycho-spiritual healing, spending more and more time maybe hand-making beautiful things that are functionally more or less the same as mass-produced things, but which add that unquantifiable element called beauty uh, and uniqueness, you know, into our living Hallelujah, environment. Hallelujah, man. Yeah, right like on. all that stuff. Um, so you, you, you ask, like, can we run an economy on that? The kind of economy that's, that comes naturally to the unquantifiable and, uh, is, is a gift economy because those things don't have a natural price if it's unquantifiable. Like what's, what's the right price for, for, for beauty, you know, for something beautiful? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm not so sure, Charles. I think, you know, certainly we price art, and we can even price the quality of that trip into the woods. I mean, there are some trainers who just – or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Shaman. And some people charge $100 and some charge 10000 a day. Exactly. And, I, and, and that doesn't seem right, does it? <laughs> well, but, it seems but, arbitrary. But there, there may be a, yeah. you know, a, a, you know, there may be a quantifiable, not a quantifiable difference, but a qualitative difference that's real in people, you know, that this, this guy is yeah. so much better, he's worth it. And so yeah, the word absolutely. spreads and whatever, and that's part of it. In some ways, we're already pricing these things. It's not like we're talking about anything that isn't already exchanged. Yeah. Well, when I say you know, beauty, that, yeah. When, when I say on, that, it, that the natural economic form for these kinds of things is gift, it doesn't mean that those people don't get money for it. Yeah, okay. Money can be offered as a gift rather than as a negotiation, as a price point. Uh-huh. You, know, you know, I give you this much money for this amount of that for this amount of, you know, a commodity. And, mm-hmm. and then there's a negotiation that goes on and, and it takes into account the, the costs, you know, and the market competition for similar things. And certainly some of that goes, goes on with, you know, vision quests. It's fundamentally not a commodity. And when it becomes a commodity, then it's no good anymore. It's missing the whole reason that you're wanting to do it. But hmm. it, this is kind of an esoteric question, you know. But really... When I write about things like this in concrete terms, the question becomes, how can you make an economy work when not very much labor is required to meet people's material needs? Yes. Uh, If the only way to distribute money is through employment, then you got a problem. Yeah. Well, unless everybody's sort of employed, which is sort of what we're moving to now, where this, you know, people are just living these freelance lives where they're offering their services and they're getting paid and whatever. And isn't that sort of the way we sort of work our way towards this? And, you know, I could see some, at some point we actually lose the money. I mean, that, that seems a ways away, but I don't mm-hmm. know. Well, I, I think one thing that has to happen is, well, I was going to talk about a universal basic income or social dividend, mm-hmm. which has been an idea yeah. that's been around for probably 100 years, if not more. Well, they were debating it in Germany last year when I was there. There's just mm-hmm. it, There would be a certain payment by the government that nobody would be beneath. Right. And that was right. you know, a big issue. I don't know what, what came of it, but it's, it was like, wow, cool. But anyway, right. go on, Charles, sorry. Yeah. And that kind of frees people from having to work in order to survive. 
and yes. allows uh, the natural expression of our gifts to come forth, which, which might be towards something that creates a salable commodity, uh, but it might not. Right. Um, so if, if you gravitate toward the thing that does produce salable commodities, that's because you want to, not because you're forced to. Right. So it allows um, a more leisure-oriented economy to work, and it allows, it allows the economy to work without it having to grow. Right. Because today, in order to keep everybody employed, you have to have increasing consumption. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I mean, the people who are moving into modernity, and there's, you know, a couple billion that aren't even doing that. Fuck, you know, they're going to want stuff. Maybe they're never going to get to 3,000 square foot homes, I hope. But, you know, I think there's a sort of a pig in the python here that we still have to deal with. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I'd like to suggest a movie. It's a one-hour film that really influenced my thinking about development and the motivation that we have, that people have for wanting the things of modernity. It's called Ancient Futures, Learning from Ladakh. Uh, it's a film made maybe 20 years ago now by Helena Norberg-Hodge. It's one hour long, very, very watchable. Not super easy to find right now. Uh -huh. um, one of the things that, that I realized from that film was that our desire for many, maybe not all, but many of the things of modernity comes because of what we've lost. For example, the hunger for status products, for, you know, Nike sneakers and designer things, and for all of the accoutrement of modern identity, the things that, you know, that make you know who you are and help you identify yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, our hunger for those things comes uh, in large part from the loss of identity that is a product of the breakdown of community and the breakdown of uh, relationship to place and the traditional stories that, and myths that embedded us in the, in the world. Mm -hmm. And as these have been dismantled, we've become hungry for identity uh, and, and for the feeling of belonging in, in the universe, of the feeling yeah. of being at home. This deconstruction or this dismantling of community and place and embeddedness is itself inherent in a commodity economy and a globalized economy. Yeah. And in, in the scientific worldview even, which uh, rips us away from the matrix of being uh, and says that the world outside yourself is just, you know, a bunch of generic building blocks put together in different ways operating according yeah. to impersonal forces. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. I think I put it in a different storyline, maybe, which is that, well, the loss of identity is being fused and one with nature and the natural world and that sort of thing is just basically a necessary stage of development, as it is for a kid who moves from, you know, basically into self-consciousness, which is a terrifying place, actually. We have to leave the garden. It wasn't a mistake, in other words. And we move forward. And actually, you know, when I think about status objects, I think status objects actually go all the way down. If you look at indigenous people, they spend, they're very busy with status objects. Now, they're not that expensive and they're whatever they are, but they spend a lot of time on them and adorning themselves and so forth. I don't think that's new. 
I just think it's like when people who have spent, you know, millions of years looking for calories suddenly find themselves in the modern world where our big problem is there are too many calories. They get fat. And mm-hmm. we have, you know, binged and we've overindulged. Uh, but it's not like a kid. You know, it's just part of the growing yeah. process. And there are people now who are just, it's like me. I mean, I'll use myself for an example. I made a lot of money back in the old days. And the learning I've had is that I'm happier in the smaller the house I live in after going right. through this whole big, you know, thing. So, yeah. you know. It's, it's, yeah, it's, no, it's, I, I, I agree. I'm not talking about oneness with nature, actually. I'm talking about mm-hmm. uh, having rich, intimate relationships with other yes. beings, each other, including those of nature, and including yeah. each other. Uh, Absolutely. And I also believe that this journey of separation uh, has happened for a reason, and this journey of individuation, is, you know, is what allows us to have these new kinds of relationships. And so, right on, man. you know, we're coming back to uh, a more complicated kind of wholeness. So, yes. like, I don't think it was a mistake at all. And and yeah. what led me to this is when I tried to identify what the mistake was. Because, you know, it sure seems like there's a terrible wrongness in the world. <laughs> yeah. But when I tried to identify the mistake, you know, and, and looked into various theories of what it was, you know, was it, you know, uh, industry, you know, was it agriculture? Was it symbolic culture? You know, language, maybe that was the mistake. John Zerzan says that. Uh, Derek well, Jensen to some, to some point. Um, or what about fire? You know, I mean, that, that was yes. what created the distinction between domestic and wild, you know, and what about stone tools? Well, animals yeah. use tools even. So maybe the mistake yeah. was the eukaryotic cell. Right? <laughs> so at some point it became... Maybe the whole goddamn thing's a mistake. Right. So at some point that became absurd. <laughs> uh, and, the Big and Bang I, was a mistake. Right. So it, so it became absurd and I, I, I began to see it in terms of a larger process. Um, yeah. That said, um, I think it's something of a myth that life before our technology was an endless chase for calories. And my thinking on this was influenced by a book I read by the anthropologist Marshall Sollins called Mm -hmm. uh, Stone Age Economics. And it's since been uh, reaffirmed by a lot of other reading, you know, and basically, so you read these accounts, you know, the the European explorer, you know, penetrates to the heart of Africa and he comes across a tribe of people who are in such desperate straits that they are reduced to eating grubs and worms, you know? And, and so we have this picture of, right. of this constant struggle for survival. Well, actually, you know, uh, it turns out that the grubs that they were eating were their most prized food, right? That they would, you know, eat those and pass over. But it was, so it was a cultural perception that they were reduced to that. And in fact, hunter gatherers lived very leisurely lives most of the time. Uh, not that their lives were perfect. Um, right. They, you know, sometimes would murder each other and they had high infant mortality uh, and weren't very comfortable often. Uh, yeah. But like as, as they had a kind of a wealth that we barely even know exists today. Uh, right. As, and as for their status symbols and their, and their adornments and things like that, those were uh, the centerpiece of their gift economy. I, I read a, an account of an anthropologist who had visited, and as a going-away present, he gave uh, like some kind of a necklace, of, you know, a bead necklace to somebody. And when he came back a couple years later, 
the necklace had been taken apart and everybody in the whole tribe was wearing one or two of the beads. Right. So yeah. uh, uh, often what we see in primitive cultures is kind of a projection of our own condition. Yeah. So it's just something yeah. that I'm always, yeah. 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 Well, fair enough. And I think this actually gets to one of the really fundamental differences to the stories that we tell. And I tell a different one uh, about uh pre-modern people. And, you know, I have my sources, whatever. It just seems to make sense to me that were there times of plenty? Yes, but good Lord, you know, famines and disease and lifespans and infant mortality and also just the endless warfare. Um, And there's plenty of evidence for that. That that We'd have men dying in the tens and 20% it doesn't even matter. I don't even necessarily want to argue, although I'm happy to, you know, these sort mm-hmm. of things, Stephen Pinker and I have my sources, whatever. But that does, it, it does color the story we tell. Because if we're growing out of that, and, you know, people did choose ultimately not to eat grubs when they didn't have to. Or at least they chose not to be with lice when they didn't have to. Then, you know, we still have to identify what was the mistake, and I don't think there was one. I think that it, was just, it seems to be just the way, and I think maybe the mistake was the Big Bang. <laughs> I was kind of not right. joking in a certain way. Because the whole thing seems to be set up on competition, contention. Not just that. I mean, my friend Keith Wood, who's a psychiatrist, was arguing quite persuasively the other day with me that our brains are actually wired for love and connection and cooperation as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with both. I mean, this is a debate that, I mean, if we had this debate, we wouldn't resolve it right now. I mean, this debate no. rages in, in anthropology, um, yes, you know, as to the, the fundamental nature of human societies before significant technology. Although I tend toward the uh, Rousseauian perspective as opposed to the Hobbesian, I'm not, right. <laughs> I'm not like 100%, like, I mean, I do understand, like, I do accept that there was warfare. Um, yeah. Maybe not quite as much as, as people like Steven Pinker say, but, but like it was definitely happening. And yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go through the, 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 the yeah. um, back and forth on that. Yeah, and I actually don't, I don't doubt that there were periods. I mean, we know that when the Neanderthals and humans were together in Europe, that there was only like 24,000 human beings in all of Europe. There wasn't that many. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I could see a hunter, you know, I think they have to fight nature and fight, you know, for for food and hunting and all of that, that's not easy when you don't have, you know, weapons. But I could see where the land of milk and honey would flow there, at least in, in periods that are, um, you know, very significant and, and not well, at all. You know, like, there's this uh, anthropologist, uh, Richard Lee, who spent time in the Kalahari Desert with the Bushmen, the Kung. This is one of the harshest climates on earth. And he was doing this work during a drought year. So it wasn't a time of plenty. Uh, mm-hmm. Nonetheless, he noticed that these people don't seem to be working very hard. So being uh-huh. a scientific anthropologist, he took out his notebook, you know, and followed them around for months and months, uh, logging exactly how much time they spent on subsistence. And it turned out to be about 20 hours a week per adult. So not including children, you know, not including really old people, like per working adult, about 20 hours a week. And he thought, yeah, you know, we spend 40 hours a week. What's going on here? And he looked at their diet, you know, it was, it was a very adequate diet. 
And so, you know, this really kind of uh, overturned, and then other people have, have replicated that uh, kind of research. Uh, and it really overturned, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, that, the idea that life was a constant struggle to survive. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that I think that leaving that life behind was a mistake. But I right. do think that we have something to learn from it, like you were saying before. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, there, there we're in resounding agreement, and hallelujah, because it's clear that there is, particularly in the interiors, a world of the indigenous stage of deep community, first of all. I mean, in some ways, community that's just coming into individuation. So, I mean, the tribe is just so deeply felt. And then this idea of initiation. Of, of being initiated into different stages of your life and different roles within the tribe where there's no anxiety about what do I do with my life, you know. And, mm-hmm. and that is deeply fulfilling. And, and I think that kind of stuff is what we're working on bringing back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just like listening to what you say. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of spiral dynamics, which I think is yeah, a useful exactly. map. It's, yes. a, it's a useful yes. map, although I haven't gotten too deeply into it because you know, any map, and this is the nature of a map, it illuminates some features of the territory and distorts or obscures or ignores other features. Yeah. And, and the ones that it illuminates often correspond to the cultural perceptions, ways of knowing, power relationships, and so forth that we're born into or that we are yeah. acculturated to. So I get, yeah. I'm, I'm always a little suspicious of getting too deeply into, into one map, and I always think, yeah. what is it obscuring and what is it not seeing? Yes. And especially, and do you have a thought about that with the spiral dynamics map or you know, the integral map in general about what um, we're missing? Well, yeah, well, one thing, when you're talking about tribal, you know, tribal consciousness or, or tribal times, one thing that might obscure is, that, is another axis of development. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not, you know, from tribal to whatever comes next, hierarchical consciousness. Um, mm-hmm. But it's in another direction that we don't even know what it is. But, you know, some, we can find it in some cultures, some, some things that, I hesitate to use the word technology, but, but technologies that are very highly developed, that you can't mm-hmm. just kind of say, oh, well, that's just another, you know, expression of tribalism. Mm-hmm. But that it's something mm-hmm. that we desperately mm-hmm. need today. And that yeah. in some sense, the human oversoul sequestered in these remote yes. places so that it could be developed yes. for us today. Well, there's one more okay. blind spot, I think, that I, that I find in, in spiral dynamics, which is that spiral dynamics itself, and this might be applied to some extent to, to integral philosophy as well, it's very much a yellow, yellow meme. And therefore it is incapable of really seeing or understanding anything that comes after yellow. Mm-hmm. So I'm just throwing that out there. But Yeah, fair yeah, enough. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Uh, your first point about the, the, this, this sort of, there's another axis of development. That's very exciting. I, mean, I actually feel bodily thrilled to, when you mention that. <laughs> yeah. Because I think it's true. And I, I think, you know, I, having studied Tibetan Buddhism, for instance, I mean, right. the, the territory that they mapped... In the, yeah. their little caves, you know, where their sort of their their exterior technology, as as Ken would say, was right up to yak butter, but right. their interior 
development was off the charts. Right. And I think that's right. all over the place. I think that's the, those are that's the precious heritage of humanity. That once we look at you know these little basically esoteric places in societies throughout history, there's jewels everywhere. Right. And so you know I think part of what we're doing as you know progressives or post postmodernists or whatever the hell we are is you know sort of gathering them up and, and looking at them. And, and everybody's, you know, you, I see, I live here in Boulder where there's just mm-hmm. this huge encounter between Buddhism and Western psychology. And it's yes. extremely fruitful. Yes. So, you know. Yeah, that's a good example. And then in terms of, you know, not being able to see above where you are, yeah, that's the nature of it. It's, it's funny. And, and one of the things about being an evolutionary, of course, there is the, the level after uh, yellow, which is turquoise, right. which has more of a spiritual understanding of the whole thing, sees this whole system as being alive and right. actually being intelligent and being actually loving, as it turns out, even. Right. Uh, even though, you know, it's set up that we have to kill each other to get here. I don't quite get it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I still shake my fist at God, but, you know, there we yeah. are. Did it have to be so painful? <laughs> Maybe that's our final, final moment, Charles. Yeah, very fun. I so appreciate what you're doing and the spirit and, you know, you're really uh, moving the ball and helping us take this thing forward. And I just couldn't be more grateful to you, Charles. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, well, I, I enjoy these conversations, you know, because the money system or the economic system isn't going to change unless everything else changes. I think more and more of us are getting the are getting the sense that everything is changing all the way down to the bottom. Yeah. All the way down and all the way up. Thank you again, Charles. You have a good day and we'll stay in touch. Yes. Thanks. Take care. Alrighty. Bye-bye.